Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios. 
all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of August, St. Evans is supporting the Women's Prison Association, empowering women to redefine their lives in the face of injustice and incarceration. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country.
Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. This morning, I read a long essay written by a born and raised Portlander about the moment he decided he would never move back there. And it filled me, I mean, I still, I still have it. I have this intense longing for a time, for a version of Portland, Oregon that I was lucky enough to experience, but no longer exists. And I feel as a person who is generally not lucky in life, that living in Portland at that time was maybe one of the luckiest things that has happened to me so far. The good old days, if you will. I know all of you listeners who grew up there or lived there in the aughts know these good old days of which I speak, a pre-Portlandia era, the TV show, not the statue downtown that was there for a long time, an era of cheap rent and house shows Only like maybe two fancy restaurants in town. One of them was called The Farm. Numerous cheap places to get a vegan Greek salad or burrito. Dancing at the Tube or the Dunes. Staying out all night. Hanging out in the park. The Value Village out in Hollywood that is now, to be fair, a pretty good grocery outlet. I still grieve for the loss of this magical time in this magical place. And I worry like a lot of you, that I'll never experience something that magical ever again. And I wonder, and I would pose this question to all of you longtime Etsy sellers who are listening to this, was there ever a golden era of Etsy, a moment where everything was just right, where you felt empowered, supported, excited? We know that often as things grow in popularity, like Portland, that as more people move in, like Portland, the magic disappears. Things get too expensive, the cool people leave, the treasures disappear, and everyone who was around for it feels a mixture of bitterness and longing. I still feel that way about Portland. I get mad when people are like, stop moving here and people ruin Portland. I I hate that kind of negativity, but I also still feel that loss, that bitterness about how it changed. I think about this all the time, actually. You know, Dustin and I live out here in the country in Lancaster County and Pennsylvania, and we're lonely. We would love to move back to Portland and be around a big chunk of our friends and family, but we can't afford it, you know? We have been priced out of a place that, at least for me, has become my home in my adult life. Here we go again, that bitterness and longing. Did something like that happen for Etsy? Was there a great time and then it ended and then it was just a bad time or maybe not a bad time, but just less great time? Because I haven't been able to find the before 
and after in my research. And I've been reading, researching, and writing about Etsy for about 80 hours now. I just can't find that moment where everything felt magical and exciting. The kind of moment that after we've experienced it, we carry with us for the rest of our lives. It's a little treasure, a special moment that we pull out during hard times. It gives us comfort. We feel lucky that we got to have it while also worrying that we'll never feel that way again. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that still fondly remembers shopping at Rad Summer, eating vegan Greek salads at Dots with my best friend Raina, and getting too drunk at the tube to ride my bike home and then walking about 50-something blocks home. I'm your host, Amanda, and today we're going to wrap up the story of Etsy, at least for now. everyone, this is episode 93, the fourth and mostly final installment in the Etsy Sewed series. At the very least, it will be the last one for a bit. I am going to be honest with you, well for one, I have already recorded this full episode and edited it in its entirety one time. Unfortunately, something weird went weird with my computer it deleted the entire file. I paid $100 that I do not have to have it restored with no luck. And so, wow, I'm going to be really excited to be done with this episode. You know, it's not the first time I've had some level of technological disaster here at Close Horse. Um, this one feels the most extreme and the first one that cost me money. But I will say every time something like this happens, the episode turns out better than ever. So buckle in. This is going to be a good one. <laughs> Let's pick up where we left off. It was finally late 2008. Rob Kalin, the 28-year-old founder and CEO of Etsy, had stepped down with Maria Thomas moving into that role. You might remember Maria Thomas came from NPR.org, and she had a lot of experience. And I don't know, the rumors out there, rumors makes it sound way sexier than it was, but you know, word on the street, if you will, was that Maria Thomas had been brought in to kind of add some order, some structure, some experience to Etsy and possibly help develop Kalen, who, I mean, this was his first big job ever, help him grow into the role of CEO. Meanwhile, Kalen was working on something called Parachute, which was sort of like a business incubator for Etsy sellers. He was no longer involved in day-to-day -day operations. And two other longtime members of the team slash co-founders, Haim Chopek and Chris McGuire, also left Etsy. So it's, it's a different time, but it's kind of the same time. I don't know. It's still the early days in a weird way. In an interview with Guardian's Tech Weekly podcast, 
Thomas admitted that Etsy had a lot of challenges to hash out before it could truly reach its potential. And one of the biggest challenges at that point was fraud. Sellers were popping up who were selling direct copies of other sellers' designs and products. She said, we have to learn from eBay and Amazon about planning for the long term. We're going to be investing and learning around the issue of fraud. Etsy will, as a venue, do the best we possibly can to prevent those things from happening. Well, real talk here. I still don't think that eBay and Amazon have cured the problem of fraud, and it's 2021. Uh, Amazon specifically is full of knockoff makeup, knockoff electronics, knockoff wellness products, clothing, you name it. Knowing that Amazon, who seems to have an endless bucket of money that just renews itself as soon as someone takes a coin out, knowing that Amazon, with all of those resources at its disposal, still hasn't gotten rid of fraud, I don't expect that back in 2008, Etsy's going to magically be able to do this. But I appreciate the concern. I don't know. She also admitted that, yeah, the site was glitchy. And yeah, the customer service was basically non-existence. And yeah, the search was horrible. And so on. And to be fair, these kinds of problems are really common with a growing e-commerce company. Literally every startup I have worked for has struggled with a glitchy site, a site that crashes all the time, bad search, awkward, maybe not that great customer service. It all happens because it costs so much money and it takes so much time to fix. And you have to remember that Kalen had never run another tech company. He certainly had very little experience in any of these issues. He didn't have a mentor out there giving him advice. He didn't even have anyone outside of the situation giving him some feedback. And it's interesting to think about this because I guess you can look back at Kalen as being one of the first startups of the major startup era. And so there wasn't anyone around who could be like, oh, well, back when my company took VC money, this is what happened. And I wish I would have done this. Now, if this happened now, he would have had all kinds of people to consult about this. So it's still kind of the Wild West. This, what we think of as wild and crazy startup culture, this is what's happening right now at Etsy. Well, not right now in 2021, but in 2008. And Kayla would tell the Wall Street Journal in 2010, quote, entrepreneurs focus on the plan first, and they, they have it backwards, in my opinion. His feeling was that the idea was most important, not the plan. And if you had a great idea, everything would fall into place. Well, we can all laugh about that now, but this, this in 2008, this was the time that things really should have fallen into place. They weren't falling into place and everything needed to be fixed ASAP if Etsy was going to not only grow its business, but hold on to the sellers and customers that it had. And with more than 1.3 million registered users, it was still a tiny baby in comparison to Etsy, but people were talking about Etsy as a successor to eBay, not even a competitor, just someone who would wipe eBay off the map. 
So Maria Thomas knew it was time to fix everything. And that would mean making some very important hires. That started with Etsy's new chief technology officer, otherwise known as the CTO, Chad Dickerson, who came from Yahoo, which was at this point a very good place to come from for a tech role. Dickerson's first day at Etsy was September 2nd, 2008. And in that first week on the job, the site went down for an hour. And I just have to say, that was not an uncommon thing in 2008. At that time, I was working for a massive retailer. And I swear, our site went down for hours or days every couple of months. The internet was just weird and kind of not that great back then, even though we were beginning to rely on it more and more for just about everything. Years later, Dickerson would tell The Cut, no one could tell what was going on, and that was kind of a taste of what was to come. The technology was a mess. Coming into Etsy was like walking into a room full of ticking time bombs, and I had to diffuse each one in the right order. So he got to work, and he hired a ton of superstar coders, and they began to fix and improve the site. But let's remember, that costs money. So every person who gets hired to try to fix the website is going to affect Etsy's ability to be profitable, which is something that, of course, all the investors want. At the same time, the investors want the site to grow. The site can't grow without the development. It's a tough balance, if there is a balance to be found at all. That said, 2008 ended up being a great year for Etsy. The recession fueled more interest in craft and handmade gifts. We talked about that in the last episode. Lots of vintage sellers moved over to Etsy from eBay. We have to believe that Maria Thomas's leadership had a positive impact on the day-to-day operations of the business and made it more efficient. And certainly, Chad Dickerson's new team of developers and engineers were making the site crash a lot less. And so Etsy ended up doing more than $87.5 million in sales that year, which sounds impressive, right? Like, please, feel free to give me $87.5 million. But... You have to keep in mind that Etsy only pocketed about $3 million of that in the way of its 3.5% commission and listing fees. The rest of that money, rightfully so, belonged to the sellers. And so when you talk about Etsy in terms of its sales, while that is important because that reveals, you know, how many customers there are, how many sellers there are, and just the general growth of Etsy as a brand, it doesn't speak to the real money. So Here they are, they've made $3 million on their biggest year yet. But you have to remember that earlier that year, the company had taken out $27 million in investment. So they had a long way to go before they could start making it all worthwhile for the investors. In April of 2009, Etsy seller Susan Schumann, aka Shoe Girl, suggested that all Etsy members unite to collectively promote Etsy on April 24th. This would be called Etsy Day. I know, wild name, wild. Sellers made signs for their cars, left flyers at coffee shops, tweeted a ton, made YouTube videos, put signs on their dogs, and met up at busy intersections to hold up signs. 
While Etsy was clear to say that this event was not sponsored by Etsy and instead was just a project that was put together by a bunch of really enthusiastic sellers, it certainly promoted participation heavily on its blog, saying things like, We here at Etsy love you for working together to create a really exciting opportunity for us all. We will be reporting the guerrilla marketing on Friday, and we challenge you, buyer, seller, or fan, to shout Etsy from the rooftops. Get the Etsy name out there in the brightest, sparkliest, boldest way you can think of. We'll be highlighting the funniest, weirdest, most attention-grabbing efforts here on Etsy's blog and on our social networks, like our Facebook page and Twitter, and we'll make sure to link back to you. I mean, okay, technically you're not like requiring it, or I don't know, technically you're not executing it, but you are so, super, so much promoting it, you know? And you make it feel like if you love Etsy, which of course, if you're selling on there, you want everyone to believe you love Etsy, uh, you're going to participate on in this, right? And a recurring theme that we're going to keep coming back to that we touched on in the previous episode was that there was a feeling from the seller's community that there was a lot of retaliation when someone was critical of Etsy. There was a lot of favoritism. Knowing that, selling in that environment, participating in that community, you hear or I guess read something like this from Etsy and you know that you will be participating in that. Overall, this action did seem to drive new visitors to the site because traffic to Etsy increased 40% on Etsy day. What is interesting to me, while there are actually a lot of things that are interesting about this to me, is that Susan Schumann, the Etsy seller who created this idea, is no longer selling on Etsy, nor is her husband. And based on what I can see from their Etsy shops, it seems like it's been a really long time. Okay, remember Etsy Bitch, the blog created by Etsy sellers who wanted a place to vent and discuss their frustrations about Etsy without dealing with the censorship and retaliation that was happening in the Etsy forums? Well, Etsy Bitch's post about Etsy Day was called Etsy Day, oh no, more free labor, and went on to say, quote, We don't really care where the idea for Etsy Day came from. It's the whole idea that Etsy is sponsoring and promoting another push for sellers to do more free marketing for Etsy without getting anything back. It's just more of the same. Many sellers have already been marketing Etsy for free for four years already. And it's important to mention this again. Etsy was still not providing marketing and advertising. And so essentially, all you really got as a seller was a place to sell your stuff and, you know, appear in the searches run by random customers. But the search was kind of crappy. The website was unpredictable. And so you can see why Etsy Bitch existed in the first place, because many sellers felt as if they were doing the marketing themselves and yet they were just paying for, I guess, the privilege to have their stuff available for purchase on Etsy. But remember, Etsy is at this point in 2009 only making a listing fee and that 3.5% commission off of each purchase. This was very low for the industry, lower than eBay. The reality is that Etsy 
barely had money to fix the site issues, much less provide advertising. Customer service was still a nightmare, and sellers felt frustrated and abandoned. The customer service issue was probably also a function of just not having enough money. And something that came to me time and time again as I was researching these episodes is like, you know, if Rob Kalin and the rest of the and the rest of the Etsy team had just been transparent, straightforward about the struggles that they were facing running Etsy, I think all of this could have turned out a lot differently. To just say, listen, we want to do this. We need to make this much money to do it. Or to ask the ask the sellers as a whole, hey, like, what are your number one priorities? We're going to work on those first. We're going to tell you how much it's going to cost. We're going to tell you how long it's going to take. And we're going to tell you why these other things need to be pushed back into the future because of finances, timing, whatever. But they didn't do that. They sort of, I don't know, they covered it up and they continued to sell this idea that everyone was going to get rich and leave their day jobs and sell on Etsy. More and more stories were popping up of Etsy sellers having their shops closed down for no reason other than retaliation over negative statements made in the Etsy forums. One seller wrote into Etsy Bitch to share their story. Today, I learned through a customer that Etsy has disabled my account. I have not received one word of notification as to why my account has become deactivated. I have no non-delivery disputes that are open, nothing. I emailed Etsy only to find out that my account was deactivated because of my affiliation, meaning she helped me set up my store with another Etsy member who had a personal falling out with Etsy. Now, what right does Etsy have to terminate my account privileges without my knowledge just because I'd gotten help from a family friend who no longer has a relationship with Etsy. Basically, this person's shop was disabled because they had help setting up their shop from someone else who Etsy had banned. I'm like, is that even legal? And when you hear this kind of stuff, and trust me, the internet of this era and for the next few years is filled with stories like this involving Etsy. Going back to the idea of Etsy Day, knowing that this kind of favoritism and retaliation exists within the Etsy staff, every seller is going to be out there promoting Etsy Day because they don't want to lose their chance. (sighs) In response, Etsy Bitch said, they seem to be shutting down sellers with a history of asking questions and not offering reasons why they were shut down. Instead, they receive an uninformative form letter, if anything. Every week, we hear of another one. Voices that called out for Etsy to straighten up and behave like a company and not a clique of vengeful children are vanishing faster and faster. Now they're dipping into the friends of our enemies level and closing them down. I'm just going to jump in here and say that I received multiple messages from various members of our community about being banned over weird stuff or nothing at all as recently as last year with little to no help from Etsy. In most cases, it was a mistake, possibly a weird software bot issue, which we'll get to. And yet Etsy was unwilling to reinstate stores. One seller was booted from the site ostensibly for selling knockoffs. She wasn't. And then so was her boss because the seller had called Etsy support for help with her boss's Etsy store. It's crazy. 
But back in 2010, one commenter at Etsy Bitch said, the big elephant in the Etsy playroom is that this is a huge business with no functioning customer service. Etsy has no seller appeals process, and Etsy has been pretty heavy-handed with some accounts. If you've ever been subjected to one of Etsy's bizarre email warnings, mutes, bans, etc., then you know that Etsy doesn't have a fair warning system. You could have your store altered, edited, and closed without any notice at all. Or you might get a series of emails that make no sense, accuse you of violations you never committed, and are never signed with an actual name. I'll just add here that in my copious reading of comments on Etsy bitch in saved screenshots of Etsy forums on and on and on. I found so many stories of people being like, um, yeah, so then I logged into my shop and half the things were missing or the photos had been deleted or the copy had been changed. All kinds of just super weird stuff. Anyway, this seller went on to say, this kind of stuff sure smells personal to me, but what recourse do Etsy sellers have on a huge, humongous, very profitable site that still has no customer service after more than four years? Check out the other sites. They all have real customer service. Etsy never will because the focus at Etsy isn't the seller. It's how many tens of thousands of new stores set up each week and throw away listing and showcase fees by the boatload. One thing for sure, the cash register drawer at Etsy is always open. Despite sales continuing to grow and grow at Etsy, more and more sellers who had been there since the beginning were starting to talk about leaving, either because the site was always crashing or because customer service was terrible or because they just weren't making any money, yet they were working harder and harder. And as a reminder, most of these sellers were underselling themselves because that's what customers expected, a hot deal. And Etsy wasn't jumping in to coach sellers on paying themselves a living wage because that might drive up prices and turn off customers. Basically, so we know now that Etsy has two sets of customers, right? One set are the sellers and the other set are the shoppers. Okay, so Etsy is selling two different narratives to these two different groups of people. To the sellers, they're saying, you're gonna quit your day job, you're gonna live your dreams, you're gonna have your own business, you're an entrepreneur, and it's all gonna happen because of Etsy, right? That's what they're telling them. They're telling the, the shoppers, hey, a lot of the stuff we're selling here is really just, it's just made with love by people who love what they're doing. It's just a hobby and they're so grateful to have you here to appreciate it by buying it. And that kind of attitude reinforces this idea that like, hey, you as a customer, as a shopper, shouldn't have to pay very much for this because you're kind of doing these people a favor by appreciating what they've made with love because they love making it. And so Etsy's reinforcing this idea that, Shoppers shouldn't pay very much for their stuff while also selling sellers this false promise that they will make a living off of their Etsy store all while undervaluing what they're selling because that's what the customers expect. 
And I think it also set up a really weird relationship as time progressed and more and more new customers came in who weren't a part of that crafting community, who maybe weren't crafters and makers themselves as it had been in the beginning. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later in this episode. But these new customers came in with this attitude that handcrafted things shouldn't cost much, that they should be cheap because the customers were kind of doing these people a favor by buying their, you know, their Afghans and their cozies and whatnot. And it made it even harder to be a seller. In late 2009, Rob Kalin wrote a letter to Etsy's board. He said that Etsy had strayed too far away for, from its original goals of community and fostering small business because it had been focusing too much on growth. Now, of course, when Kalen accepted all that VC money, he was committing to growth and profitability. But as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, Kalen would admit in 2019 that he had no idea what he was signing himself, Etsy, and its community up for when he took that money. He said, I didn't have enough awareness of the context of what was going on there in terms of if we take this step, will it compromise the values? Well, the board agreed to reinstate Kalen. On his first day back, he called an all-hands meeting. No, he didn't wear nail polish this time. And he said, I'm here to restore a sense of wonder, a sense of poetry, and a sense of foolishness to Etsy. And you know what? It was a great time for him to step back into that role. Thanks to all of Maria Thomas's hard work and Chad Dickerson's overhaul of the tech side of Etsy. Okay, well, it wasn't a complete overhaul, but it was a start. The company was finally profitable. Well, let's say profitable in quotes. We're going to come back to that. It ended the year with more than double the sales of the previous year at more than $180 million. Once again, Etsy only got to keep about, I don't know, five to 10 million of that. So they were still far away from providing a strong return on the investment money that they had received in 2008, but things were looking up. And just gonna tell you again, that share of that money that Etsy was keeping was so small because basically the only thing they charged sellers for at this point was the listing fee and that three and a half percent commission. They weren't making a ton of money off of sellers. Still, Kalen truly believed that he was going to be able to restore that sense of anti-capitalist community-driven values to Etsy. I would argue, and I'm sure you would agree at this point, that was a fool's errand because we know the amount of investment the company had brought in at that point. There was too much money on the line to indulge idealistic thinking. We're talking serious money from very serious people. And no matter what Kalen might have believed at the time, he still had to deliver massive growth and continued profitability eBay, for better or worse, had stopped thinking about community and empowering sellers a long time ago. Etsy would have to do the same if it really wanted to be the new eBay. And I'm not saying that I think Kalen wanted Etsy to be the new eBay, but the investors definitely wanted Etsy to be the new eBay. So we're already seeing this disconnect I mean, it already, it always existed, but it's, I feel like it's starting to become clearer and bigger. 
Kaylin sat down for an interview with Terry Evans of the Wall Street Journal in March of 2010. And I have to say, I found him very likable in this interview. He feels sincere. He feels like someone I could talk to about a lot of things. And that is not normally how I feel when I read interviews with CEOs. You have to remember that I've worked with not one, but two CEOs who had a cult of personality around them and working with them was terrible and created a very toxic, abusive work environment. I find myself really disappointed and really angry when I see people pandering to or worshiping CEOs, you know, because of my own experiences and because a lot of CEOs are just filled with hot air. (laughs) So when I say that I find Kaylin likable, I'm both surprised and delighted. We agree on a lot of things. We have a lot of the same hopes for the world. The difference is that he had both the resources and, well, the hubris to see his vision play out. And I've never had quite enough hubris to try to make it work. When he was asked what his vision for Etsy was, he said, instead of having an economy dictate the behavior of communities, we want to empower communities to influence the behavior of economies. In my mind, Etsy's ecosystem is about empowering and supporting these very small businesses. That goes well beyond just a marketplace. He went on to say, it's always been important to me that Etsy the company is part of Etsy the community. If you can keep that direct connection to your community, that's vital to success. I actually dislike the word users. I don't see people in the community as those who use us, and we're not trying to use them either. That's great. You got to love this, right? The interviewer, Terry Evans, asked him, keep a human is one of your rallying cries. What does that mean? And he said, it means growing big while staying small. Etsy itself is hundreds of thousands of very small businesses. And I want to be able to keep that intimacy within our own company, even as we grow and the number of people we need to support grows. It it means always keeping a human face on what we're doing. I don't want to hide behind a corporate firewall and start speaking with some third person voice. I want to always speak with a human voice. Okay, well, let's, let's pause for a moment here to reflect on all of this. Take stock of the situation. When I read this, when I think about what Kaylin is saying, when I remember that VC money comes with strings attached, and as we've talked about, these are not just little strings. These are like the massive ropes that hold the biggest cruise ship you can imagine in place. Imagine a cruise ship that has like three or four Olympic-sized swimming pools and a bowling alley and some theaters and lots of buffets and a shopping mall, the ropes that would hold that thing in place. And so all of these warm and fuzzy ideas like community and humanity and empowering small business, they are deprioritized by those cruise ship size ropes that come with that VC money. And you know what? When I think about that, I get depressed, like really depressed, because I love what Kalen is saying here. And I want this platform, the one he's describing, to exist. I want an Etsy that is all about community and empowerment that prioritizes mentoring and supporting its sellers more than bringing in new shoppers. I want an Etsy that says, hey, let's prioritize sellers making a profit 
over us making a profit because if our sellers do well, we will do well too. And as I reconsider everything that Kaylin said to the Wall Street Journal, as I imagine a version of Etsy that truly embodies these values, this version of Etsy that I love, well, I know there is no way in hell that Rob Kalin is a part of today's Etsy, the Etsy that we know in 2021. Yes, spoiler alert right here, things are going to change again. In the meantime, Kalen doubled Etsy's staff, adding more engineers and customer service reps. The goal was to take care of sellers to treat them as the valued customers they truly were. And of course, if you want to double your employees, then you need to massively increase the amount of revenue you're bringing in to cover those salaries and remain profitable. You know that phrase, you got to spend money to make money? Well, really, it should be if you spend money, you got to make twice as much money. And Kaylin has no option at this point but to continue maintaining a company that becomes more and more profitable with time in the shortest amount of time. He certainly cannot become less profitable. But even the same amount of profitability, just maintaining that altitude of profitability is not an option. It must be more and more profitable while also becoming bigger and bigger. Remember, investors here are like, this is the next eBay. You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking as I've been working on this about how eBay and its wild and crazy exponential growth set the tone, created these expectations around all startups that came after that, that they would all be eBay, even if they didn't do what eBay did. They would make wild billions and billions of dollars in profit for all the investors and stockholders. And Etsy was just the beginning of startups startups kind of crashing and burning because of these unrealistic expectations. Okay, let's talk about profit a little bit here. In 2015, Etsy would file for an IPO, meaning it was going to go public, and we'll discuss that more. In order to do that, it had to file a lot of paperwork, you know, around, you know, the risks, the expenses, all of that. And in those filings, it would reveal that the company had never technically turned a profit because any extra cent that had been made had to be continuously reinvested into improving the website, hiring staff, and marketing. And my guess here, based on what I've read, based on my experience working in startups, is that the list I just gave you was how Etsy prioritized it. So number one, fixing that website. Number two, hiring staff, mostly to fix that website and deal with customer service. And if there was any money left over, marketing. Of course, Sellers don't know this. Once again, it comes back to this idea, what if Etsy had been honest? How would Etsy's trajectory have changed? Keep that in mind as we keep going here. In the last episode, I pretty heavily cited a 2011 profile of Etsy written by Max Chafkin for Inc. And as I mentioned then, this article was pretty negative in terms of its portrayal of Kalen. Chafkin paints him as a weirdo spouting off cuckoo idealistic hot air while fondling a knife. You know what? 
let's just reread that particular paragraph, okay? We, we, ha- we have to. Today, Kaylin is socially awkward, reticent, and giving to eccentricities that can seem downright crazy. I speak to people in the business world and the technology world, but I don't admire them, he says, pointing an eight-inch combat knife at me for emphasis. I admire the makers of the world. This is not empty rhetoric. Kalen makes his own furniture and his own underwear. He also thinks that trying to maximize shareholder value is, quote, ridiculous, adding, I couldn't run a company where you had to use that as an excuse for why it was doing things. I'm just going to go ahead and say that maximizing shareholder value is, is a ridiculous statement and not a good look for him. I mean, I agree with what he's saying. I think it's a very good look, but there's no way his investors and the board liked reading that. And also, even just the inclusion that he makes his own underwear, that was an intentional choice to make him look extra weird because not that many people are making their own underwear. It implies he has too much spare time and or the wrong priorities. Making your own underwear is great. The expectation in the business world is that as a CEO, you probably don't have time to do that. Chaffin would go on to say, in my experience, I found Kaylin infuriating, inscrutable, and yet impossible to hate. Not the best review. Is that a three star? A two star? Is it a one star? I mean, it's kind of got a little bit of a compliment in there. I don't know, but it's not good. Well, later, and I mean much later, years later, it would turn out that the knife that Kaylin was allegedly fondling, this eight-inch combat knife, which sounds terrifying, was actually a letter opener made by an Etsy seller. And Kaylin was just sort of nervously fidgeting with it because it was very clear that Chafkin did not like him. Once again, that would not come out for years. I want to say it came out in 2019, many years after the fact. So the business world and Anyone else reading Inc. in 2011, and let me assure you that all the investors were reading it, anyone who worked at Etsy was reading it, everyone involved financially with Etsy in any way was reading it, all of them got to see Rob Kalen as a child with a knife who was bad at his job and wore homemade underwear. Chafkin pointed out time and time again that Kalen was essentially on a fool's errand, that there was no way he specifically could make Etsy profitable and huge, make it the next eBay while still prioritizing sellers. And Chafkin himself viewed most of the stuff for sale on Etsy as, quote, junk, albeit, quote, strangely compelling junk you kind of can't help but wonder if maybe he was not the right person for this profile. And imagine all of the sellers on Etsy reading that this guy, this reporter, thinks everything that they make that takes hours, that they're literally making by hand, is junk, albeit strangely compelling junk. I mean, he's just not the right person to be writing this article, which, like, he has an agenda here. He went on to write, as I was interviewing people for this article, 
I repeatedly heard that Kalen could be dangerous at close range. He can be a very difficult person, says Matt Stinchcomb, the head of Etsy's European operations and a longtime friend. I don't mean that in a negative way. Hmm. He's just like a lot of really smart people who don't want to suffer the rest of us. Lots of stuff that like technically isn't defamation in this article, but sure isn't great. The article was not a great look when it was published in April 2011 because more and more of the business community and surely Etsy's investors were starting to wonder if Kalen was standing in the way of Etsy's growth. Remember, they're expecting Etsy to be the next eBay. I'm tired of saying it, but that's what they were thinking. However, there were still people out there who believed in Kalen, if only because they were looking at all of eBay's mistakes. In 2010, New York Times writer Jenna Wortham described eBay as having, quote, gone from resembling an overflowing garage sale to being something closer to Walmart in the eyes of many shoppers. It has struggled to reinvigorate its marketplace, and it's alienated many of the smaller sellers who were once its lifeblood. We already know that, right, from our eBay so that a lot of people were leaving, a lot of people felt abandoned, some people felt trapped because they didn't have anywhere else to sell. And in general, eBay had lost a lot of its community energy. Rob Kalin told Wortham that Etsy would be avoiding eBay's mistakes by prioritizing and valuing its sellers, saying, it is a symptom of our times. They look to maximize profitability over community. He went on to say, it's not just you are what you eat anymore, you are what you buy, and these things define you. Still, for the most part, 2011 was a weird year at Etsy. For one, there was that ink profile painting Kaylin as a difficult, knife-wielding hot mess. And then there was the people search disaster, a new feature that was supposed to add a social media type vibe to the site. But really just violated everyone's privacy. And, you know, this was a time where every retailer, every website was like, how can we be like Facebook? How can people hang out on our site and buy things, but also feel like they are part of a community? This is when reviews started popping up. I mean, I I worked at ModCloth pretty close to this time period. And I will tell you that at ModCloth, we had like nailed the community slash store vibe. Like it worked. We had tons of really engaged shoppers who not only posted reviews and their measurements for every single thing they bought, they also posted photos of themselves wearing that stuff. We shared that stuff on social media, on the blog, on the website. And we had a very loyal community of shoppers who were really engaged with everything that was going on. Of course, you're at Etsy, you're like Etsy and ModCloth, they're practically cousins, sisters, I don't know. We should be doing the same thing, but somehow it didn't go very well. Do you remember e-commerce bites, aka auction bites from our eBay sode, you know, run by the Steiners? Well, even the Steiners had to cover the disaster of people search, but they did it in a very chill, non-biased way, like they do, saying, Etsy users are unhappy after learning that anyone can now find them by typing their real names into the Etsy search engine. Even buyers show up in search results, letting people view their favorite items, favorite shops, and the teams to which they belong. 
Beyond that, Etsy sellers were feeling even more frustrated than ever. Etsy was refusing to run television ads. We know that's because they couldn't afford it. Why didn't they just tell them that? Sellers were no longer finding themselves appearing in Google searches, and no one at Etsy was giving them a straight answer. PayPal payments were going to the wrong seller, or sellers were being paid the wrong amount. Stores were continuing to be shut down at the whim of random Etsy staffers, and the same stuff was being featured over and over and over again on the Etsy homepage, fueling even more feelings of favoritism. One seller wrote to Etsy Bitch, Etsy did not and does not plan ahead, and they refuse to increase functionality and increase advertisements. Basically, at this point, I think the first site to get commercials will be the front runner. Artfire has been nipping on the heels of Etsy, and if they pump up the advertising, then Etsy will lose what little upper hand it had. Etsy's only on top because it was first. It's not smartest or prettiest or best. It was just first. And its luck is starting to run out. And so are the customers. These kinds of sentiments were everywhere, and they were becoming more and more noticeable. You know, any person, whether they worked for Etsy, worked for one of the investment firms, or just were a customer, could go read Etsy, bitch, or Google Etsy and find this content. It was moving more and more to sort of like the front page of the internet, In July 2011, Wall Street firm Greencrest Capital released a report about Etsy saying that the seller complaints and concerns were becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Nonetheless, the firm predicted that the company's revenue, not to be confused with sales, would grow from $72 million in 2011 to $201 million in 2016. I know that sounds like a lot of money, but that's slow growth over five years when venture capitalists are expecting exponential eBay-style growth. This growth would have been fine. This would have been a different Etsy, okay? This would have been an Etsy that maybe hadn't taken all that VC money. Greencrest Capital surveyed Etsy sellers and found a lot of bad news. Over 80% of respondents had concerns about their Etsy experience. Their complaints included the effort required to maintain an active storefront, competition with other sellers because there were way too many sellers, it felt, there were privacy concerns, and Etsy's lack of technological capabilities, particularly product search, just kept coming up time and time again. The analysts who wrote this report went on to say that there were only two ways that Etsy could make sellers happier, and both of them, I'm going to tell you, are terrible. Either reduce its already super low for the industry fees, or make significant margin-dilutive platform investments. And that means spending money on things like better site performance and search, customer service, fraud detection teams, and advertising, which would cut into the company's ability to ever make a profit. And oh yeah, the company would never be able to go public without being profitable. And as I mentioned earlier, Going public was the big goal because all of those investors would see a big payday. Well, 
you're probably not surprised to hear that this report, on top of that very bad ink article, on top of the epic fail of the people search function, on top of more and more public criticism of Etsy from its sellers, well, it was the end for Rob Kalin. In July of 2011, Rob Kalin was fired once and for all from Etsy. He would later describe that year as hurting like hell, and he would tell Vox after clearing up that he was not brandishing a knife, but an artisan-made letter opener. He would say, it felt like my life's work was being taken away from me. But looking back, I'm glad that it happened. Making incremental improvements to a publicly traded company is not my ballywick. That's not what I would have been the best at anyways. Etsy bitch would take a particularly bitter and cruel final jab at Kalen, saying, Up until now, it's been Kalen's little fiefdom run by himself and his protected inner circle of hipster trolls who seem to not only be untouchable, but unpublishable. Have the investors been actually paying attention and simply couldn't look away anymore and overlook his aloof bizarreness, like pulling hunting knives on business reporters? Or did, as I prefer to think, Kalen just stop showing up for work? God knows his heart hasn't seemed to be in it for five years, so why bother having the rest of him show up when you can stay at home and build guitars from Ikea doors and read Greek poetry so obscure, even Jack Kerouac would roll his eyes. I don't like this. I don't like this at all. It's it's not good. Uh, I understand that everyone's frustration with Etsy was growing and growing. And naturally, Bob Kalin's the founder and the CEO. He is going to bear the brunt of that criticism, right? He is the poster that's tacked to the walls that everybody's taking target practice with. He's the one who has to take it. But... I feel like, I feel like this is a dude who has no business experience. This is a guy who is trying to fix something that he cannot fix. And I also look at all these people who are Etsy sellers and real talk, none of them know what it's like to try to build a website, to improve search function, to clear up fraud, to afford advertising when you don't have any money for it and have to deliver all of these astounding metrics of growth and profitability to your investors. Kalen, 100% in over his head. The person at Etsy Bitch who wrote this column, not understanding how hard it all was and that it wasn't really all his fault. I've said it before in this episode and I'll say it again. I think this would have all turned out a lot differently if Kaylin had been transparent and honest with everyone about what was going on because it was the sellers turning against him that really put that last nail in his coffin of being CEO. And I think if he could have earned their trust and loyalty by being real with them, everything would have turned out differently. Chad Dickerson, the CTO that Maria Thomas hired back in 2008, would be installed as the new CEO. And this would be the turning point for Etsy. Everything that came after it is what we complain about now. Ad fees, annoying star systems, bad customers, free shipping, 
resellers, all the bad stuff starts now. So buckle up because we're about to cover a whole lot of bad stuff really fast. Chad Dickerson took over the reins of Etsy, and to be honest, for a while, nothing really seemed different. He released a statement on the blog, as they always were doing over at Etsy, with a lot of talk about community and empowering sellers, all the usual stuff. He promised that search would be improved, but no one shared a plan or a timeline for this. He vowed that more customers would come to the site. Once again, no plan, no timeline. And there would be a new seller happiness team. According to Dickerson's statement on the Etsy blog, this new team will include people from all over the company with a focus on making running your shops on Etsy both delightful and rewarding. We'll be engaging with the seller community more publicly and more deeply with a unified cross-disciplinary effort from teams across the entire company. The first task of the seller happiness team is determining how we will measure happiness in the seller community so we can set a baseline for how we're doing and then improve upon it. Well, so, so many feelings here. For one, is it just me or does this remind you of certain jobs you've had where you've had to take like an annual or biannual or quarterly employee happiness survey, or I don't know what it's called. You would score things, talk about pain points, that kind of thing. And then you would feel like nothing ever happened after you did that. At one of my jobs, we did we did these surveys. And as, as a management level employee, I would have to go to meetings where we would review all the scores, the metrics, we would set goals for improving these scores in the future. But ultimately, like taking someone's feelings and turning them into a number, it's kind of it's kind of a doomed project to a certain extent, right? So that's that's one weird thing there that we're trying to score, to put a number on seller happiness. Also just gonna say here, Chad Dickerson is smart because he knows that one of the major reasons that Rob Kalin was ousted was that the sellers were revolting. They were leaving the site. They were being very loud about it. And, you know, the financial community got wind of it. It was a bad look. So Chad Dickerson knows he has to make those sellers happy. Well, overall, though, this whole thing Sounds like a lot of bland, meaningless corporate speak. Etsy Bitch, in one of its final posts, would call it the ridiculousness of a seller happiness team that included no actual sellers. Did you catch that when I was reading it? It was people from across the company. Etsy Bitch asked, how does Etsy propose to determine and measure seller happiness if it continues to ignore what sellers have been saying in the forums for years? Well, I will tell you, Etsy bitch, based on my experience, they were going to have you all take a survey where you scored different feelings between one and five or one and 10. They were going to add it all up and hit a score and then try to improve it. And is that the best way to go? I'm not saying it is. I just know that's how these things work. Etsy Bitch went on to say, does engaging with the seller community come after locking threads with the public spanking, after sellers are muted, banned, and perma-muted, after Etsy publishes an entire page 
of all the ways Etsy plans to continue silencing sellers it doesn't like? Well, I want to reiterate again that there's a lot of favoritism, a lot of retaliation, and a lot of censorship happening within the Etsy team involving the sellers. And really, Rob Kalin should have rooted it out a long time ago, and he didn't. Chad Dickerson should have fixed that because I never, ever saw anything about it getting better. This was also a particularly bad time to start a conversation about a seller happiness team because that same week, a featured seller, meaning featured on the homepage, meaning probably getting tons of sales, well, she was enjoying her second time as a featured seller, which further reinforced the sense of favoritism and unfairness happening at Etsy. And do you remember the first episode when I talked about Yoku and how I'd done that collaboration with her at one of my jobs? Her name was brought up repeatedly in some of these Etsy bitch forums as a seller who experienced a lot of favoritism. I'm just going to say as an outsider, maybe that was the case, but also her stuff was really good. Well, the Etsy bitch community had so much to say about favoritism, the seller happiness team, and all of this, these promises that Dickerson was making. One commenter wrote, no matter what Chad lists from here to hell and back, Etsy is never going to follow through on one item. Etsy's SOP is to yak about the list for two weeks, decide they're all too much work, and drop them in a flash. If 200 people can all go home and not figure out that an all-internal seller happiness team without sellers is the stupidest Etsy idea among hundreds of stupid Etsy ideas, what else can anyone expect? One of the last things Dickerson called out in his list was dealing with the so-called reseller problem. He said, I'll be focusing more of the company's energy on understanding and addressing the core issues that lead to resellers being visible on Etsy. We'll definitely continue to step up enforcement, but we'll also be doing more work to address the root causes of the problem. By the way, resellers were people who were buying stuff from Alibaba or Cafe Press or any wholesaler and selling that stuff on Etsy as the stuff they had made themselves. This was a violation of Etsy's policies, and while the company was working on weeding out these sellers, they were also penalizing innocent sellers along the way. This would become Etsy's most controversial issue in 2012, and it received a lot of bad press about it. Etsy had two teams that scoured the site for resellers and copycats. They were the marketplace integrity and the trust and safety teams. Their job was to monitor the site for factory-made goods, items that violated copyright, or offensive material, and they would shut down seller shops that broke the rules. Makes sense to me, right? There was also, as of 2012, this new software that would help them find these issues without a human. And I suspect that a version of this software still exists, hence all of the problems with sellers still losing their Etsy shops for no reason. This software was called Scram, and it flagged sellers who seemed to set up their shops and fill them with product too fast, which, well, the thinking here 
it's enormously flawed, spoiler, was that the average Etsy seller, a true maker, would make something one at a time, photograph it, slave over the copy. It would take them a really long time to not only create a new product, but also list it, right? So if someone was listing a lot of stuff in one day, it could be a red flag that they were a reseller, except... What if your process as a seller is to make all the stuff, then photograph all the stuff, then edit all the photographs, then write all the listings and upload it all, which many sellers would do. You know, it's always nice to do these things in batches because you can kind of move through it faster. Well, if you did something like that, you would be flagged as a reseller for investigation. In 2012, Etsy had doubled its trust and safety teams to a whopping total of 16 people, which was not enough headcount to actually do this job well, which is probably why a lot of sellers felt that Etsy was not doing this job well. Sellers were taking matters into their own hands, starting their own call-out site for resellers and copycats called, big surprise here, Etsy callout, and its mission was, quote, calling out blatant mistaggers, resellers, and other hot topics since admin won't let us. Etsy seller Jamie Core told the Wall Street Journal in 2012 about her own experience hearing from these Etsy police. The company sent her an email with a long survey asking her about her items for sale, specifically a soy strawberry candle. The survey requested the names and ages of anyone working with her in her candle making business and for step-by-step photos of her production process. I was flipping out, she said. About two hours after she sent in the photos and the answers, Etsy responded by email, thanks for being a part of the Etsy community. And they didn't close her shop. She did not know why her candles were flagged. The Wall Street Journal reached out to Etsy for comment, and Julian Wong, a member of the Etsy integrity and safety team, said, We open up dialogues with sellers, and in most instances, well over 80%, they result in outcomes like Jamie's. Other sellers would find their stores suspended because they were shipping from a different address than their home address which makes perfect sense if you're, I don't know, shipping from work because you haven't quite yet had the luxury of quitting your day job. Or maybe you've rented out a studio and you ship from there. Or maybe you just don't want rando Etsy customers to know where you live. If you shipped from a different address, your account would be suspended or go into review. Etsy told the Wall Street Journal that about 1,300 of its sellers were flagging suspected items each week for review. Once again, another example of Etsy sellers having to take on extra labor that was not their job. But the Etsy team itself just wasn't catching this stuff. And while 1,300 sounds like a lot, it was only half a percent of total active listings. Yet even that is way too much work for 16 people. So what was happening? Things were falling through the cracks. Don't forget that Scram was also flagging stuff that the team needed to investigate. So often they couldn't get back to sellers and be like, okay, everything's fine or explain what was going on or anything like that. And on top of that, they would just miss a lot of things that should have been pulled from the site. Despite Etsy's public commitment to stopping resellers, it was still 
happening. And Chad Dickerson received a ton of heat when someone discovered that his public list of favorite items for sale on Etsy included a mass-produced robot watch that had literally sold thousands of units. Another now-famous incident involved a furniture maker that Etsy profiled on its blog as an Etsy success story. This furniture maker was called Ecologia Malibu. In record time after this blog post made its first appearance, the internet, led by another blog, Regretzi, discovered that the woman shown in the Etsy profile, she was sketching designs in her dreamy Malibu studio, well, she was actually a distributor for a manufacturer in Indonesia. She wasn't making shit, if you will. Photos surfaced of laborers literally building the furniture she was claiming to make herself. In record time, Etsy rebranded her as a collective and closed the comments on the blog post. Well, this only infuriated sellers more. A change.org petition popped up demanding that Etsy take a stand once and for all against resellers, saying, For a long time, Etsy members have been frustrated by the lack of response from Etsy when flagging obvious resellers. Even when accompanied by proof of reselling by linking to wholesale sites containing the very same products sold as handmade on Etsy, flagging rarely results in anything being done. And I'm just going to say, I'm assuming it's because they did not have enough people doing the job of investigating this stuff. 16 people is not enough. I'm guessing they just still were not making enough money to hire people. Despite all of this drama in 2012, Dickerson and Etsy were still able to raise another $40 million in investment, pledging to grow the international business and continue to improve functionality with that money. Of course, bringing in even more investment meant that growth and profitability were even more important and must happen aggressively and faster than ever. Ironically, that same year, Etsy became a B Corp, meaning that its corporate goals must include having a positive impact on society and the environment. That's a very shorthand way of breaking it down, but trust me, it's a lot of work. It's achievable, especially if you are at the level Etsy is at. And it's an important distinction to have as a brand like Etsy. However, Etsy would lose that certification in 2017 because the policies and structures required to qualify as a B Corp were holding back its growth. In the fall of 2013, Chad Dickerson stood before a meeting of Etsy sellers and employees and said something huge. I cannot underscore enough what a turning point this is about to be for Etsy. He said, today we're announcing you can hire whatever number of people you need, meaning Etsy would now start selling factory-made products. When this new manufacturing initiative was rolled out to everyone via a video chat, Heather Jassy, who is the SVP of Members and Community, that's who was leading the conference, described it as, quote, one of the most stressful days of my life. Etsy spun it as a great opportunity for sellers to now finally, for real this time, 
quit their day jobs and do what they loved by paying someone else to make stuff for them. And it made a show of bringing in retailers like Macy's who were planning to buy tons and tons of Etsy-made products at wholesale. As you may have imagined or may recall, this, this whole thing did not go over well. Furthermore, Etsy wouldn't be monitoring who was making this stuff for the sellers. It was up for these sellers, who I want to remind you, have no experience in manufacturing, in supply chain, in auditing factories. It was their job to go out and find and vet factories to make that stuff for them. Dickerson was just like, hey, we hope that Etsy sellers naturally have the ethics to work with factories who treat their workers well, etc., But it wasn't Etsy's business. Etsy wasn't getting involved in ethical manufacturing or ensuring that it happened at all, which think of how many times in this series we've compared Etsy to Walmart and how Etsy was supposed to be the antidote to Walmart. Don't worry, there'll be more of that coming up too. If Etsy is no longer just like made by individuals, but actually manufactured on a larger scale and no one is ensuring that the factories where this stuff is made are ethical. How is Etsy different from Walmart anymore, right? Just keep that, keep, put a pin in that. He went on to say that it didn't matter if things were no longer, say, screen printed, but now digitally printed or had machine embroidery versus hand embroidery, as long as the product was, quote, handmade in spirit. I hate that term so much. It makes me angry. We're probably asking yourself, you probably know the answers already. You're a smart cookie. Why did Etsy make this decision essentially killing the handmade human vibe of the brand? Are you ready? Let's break it down. Reason number one, Etsy was losing its successful sellers. They were moving off the platform and starting their own e-commerce sites, wholesaling to other retailers on their own, opening their own stores, all the things. This was a last-ditch effort to keep those big sellers. Etsy needed them, for one, to continue that story that sellers could quit their day jobs and make a living on Etsy. They needed those successful sellers on the platform to illustrate that, and two, They needed those listing fees and commissions from those successful sellers to keep the company going because the line between successful seller on Etsy and just the average seller on Etsy, they were so far apart in terms of the money they were making and the amount of stuff they were selling and therefore the amount of money they were giving to Etsy. Etsy needed their money. Also, These successful sellers had been asking for permission to outsource production of their goods for years, but they were turned down time and time again. Rob Kalin himself had been vehemently opposed to it. But the reality was that any successful seller had left Etsy long ago, maybe for this reason, maybe because it was just easier to go out on their own, and they really had no use for a site that was so controlling so censoring, and offered little value in return for its fees and policies. Reason number two, Etsy was hitting a ceiling in terms of growth. 
Think about it. There are only so many makers, so many vintage sellers out there, and we already know that sellers were getting burned out or leaving the site because of its policies. And so there weren't many new people to bring into the fold. You need the sellers to attract the shoppers. Etsy was promising massive growth to its investors. Beyond promising it even, they were required to deliver it, and it just couldn't happen with its current seller base, which leads me to reason number three. This is a good time to remind you that Etsy still wasn't profitable, but if they could get, if they could get more sellers in the door who sold many units of the same item over and over again, they could maximize revenue without creating more work for themselves, as in, you know, managing more sellers and more listings. If the same listing is just selling and selling and selling, it's a it's a smaller lift for a lighter lift for everyone involved. In plain and simple terms, Etsy's future, its required exponential growth, its mandatory profitability, that return on all of its investors' money, it relied on selling a shit ton of stuff. And that could never happen when it was all handmade. Makers only had so many hours in a day, and that wasn't enough to grow Etsy in the way it needed. And analysts had been calling this out for years, that there was a low ceiling on the size of business you could have with handmade stuff. This this policy change was only a matter of time. Ultimately, only about 6% of existing eBay sellers began to outsource manufacturing or at least hire people to help them after this policy change. It was not the huge shift that Dickerson was hoping for, but what did happen is tons more sellers appeared on the platform, this time reselling stuff from Alibaba or other cheap e-commerce sites for prices that were lower than those of any of the other handmade stuff available on Etsy. And guess what happened? More and more sellers felt alienated and left. In 2015, Etsy seller Grace Dobush wrote a great piece for Wired called How Etsy Alienated Its Crafters and Lost Its Soul, where she explained why she had closed her Etsy store. And I'll share a link to this in the show notes because it's a it's really good piece. She left because of the resellers, the pressure to price as cheaply as possible, and because it was just too easy to get lost in the other tens of thousands of items on the site. And she said, quote, at its outset, Etsy was a powerful tool for makers by makers. We were a bunch of Davids fighting back against the big box Goliaths with artisanal slingshots. Founder Rob Kalen came through the same online craft forms that me and my crafty cohorts did, and we were making a revolution. In the past few years, it's become apparent that Etsy is the Goliath. IndieCraft's whole purpose from the outset was to meet your makers and consume conscientiously. Now, when you ask your friend where they got that cool Weekend at Bernie's cross-stitch sampler, they'll tell you, I bought it from Etsy. The maker's identity is secondary, if noted at all. She went on to say, I'm not pessimistic about handmade culture at large. Maker culture is thriving 
independently of Etsy, and it's easier than ever for crafters to run independent online stores. I prefer to sell my wares and buy my presents at local indie craft markets and in curated brick and mortar shops that reflect the flavor of their communities and encourage real relationships between makers and buyers. The bottom line is this, Etsy needs crafters more than crafters need Etsy. Well, it comes as no surprise because I've told you this 10 times already, that in 2015, Etsy went public. This had always been the goal. This would be the big payday for all those investors. And the company's offering of about 16.7 million shares raised $267 million after it was priced at the top end of the expected range of $14 to $16. None of this was shocking or disappointing. I mean, at this point, Etsy had 28 million items for sale on its site. What is interesting is that I found out that Rob Kalin only made about two and a half to three million dollars off of this whole thing. Now, I would love to receive two and a half to three million dollars, but let's think about he founded Etsy. It was his idea. But over time, his ownership of the company was diluted over and over again as the company brought in more investment. And for, I'm sure no one was giving him great advice on how to maintain his, his piece of the pie. It's a lot of money, right? Two to $3 million, but that's not like set for life money. And it seems that if you start something like Etsy, you should be set for life. It's like take that and then also realize that his vision for Etsy, that it would be all about community and fostering small business and sort of being anti-capitalist and capitalist at the same time, all of this stuff disappeared. And Etsy over time was none of those things. It's like adding insult to injury. I mean, we can look back at all this and we can see that it is a very clear that the company had lost its way a long time ago, or at least its original values and community in exchange for all that growth. And I don't know when it happened. Did it happen when they took accepted the first round of money? Did it happen when Kaylin was asked to leave the first time or the second time? Was it when Dickerson decided you could start manufacturing things for Etsy? I'm not really sure. But even in 2015, when Etsy went public, it was so far away from where it had begun. And not, this is my opinion, in a good way. And I know a lot of sellers felt the same way. April Winchell, the founder of the now defunct Regretsy blog, wrote an opinion piece for Vice called From Etsy to Sweatsy. And it was ostensibly a discussion of whether or not Etsy stock was a good investment. She said, Etsy is Walmart with better fonts. I told you we'd talk about Walmart again. She continued, you've still got to ask yourself, what exactly am I investing in? Selling factory-made goods isn't a movement. It doesn't reimagine commerce or unite the global marketplace or do any of the other things Etsy likes to hear itself talking about. Mass production is the dreary cornerstone of every big box retailer, and it doesn't turn into mason jars full of daisies when Etsy does it. 
Etsy is not magic. Etsy is Walmart with better fonts. Now let's look at the worst case scenario and the one more likely to be true. Many of the factories manufacturing Etsy's unique items are sweatshops. You can yarn bomb it all you want, but the people who produce this merchandise are not crafters. They aren't sitting around their kitchen tables happily stringing beads and living little handmade dream. They are impoverished people in third world countries forced to work in terrible conditions. They're exposed to dangerous chemicals, they work on unsafe machines, and if they're lucky, they make less than 50 cents an hour. And many of these exploited workers are children. That's what you're investing in. And here's your return. Every piece they make that gets sold on Etsy is part of your profit. Enjoy your dividend check. Well, beyond the ethics of it all, it turned out very fast that maybe Etsy stock wasn't a good investment. About a month later, Etsy's stock prices tanked as it was revealed that as many as, are you ready for this? Two million items for sale on Etsy, about 5% of all the goods on the site, could be counterfeit or violate trademark laws. Furthermore, this rampant reselling and theft of intellectual property was causing a surge of Etsy sellers to leave, heading off to start their own websites, to go on to Shopify, Big Cartel, etc. And remember, Etsy needed those sellers in order to sell stuff to shoppers. So this is bad. This is very bad. And this led to a group of investors filing a class action lawsuit against Etsy claiming fraud. Basically, the suit claimed that Etsy's CEO and officers failed to disclose numerous problems with the site, which could affect the stock price, including that 5% all of merchandise for sale on Etsy being either counterfeit or constituting trademark or copyright infringement, and that bigger brands were increasingly pursuing sellers on Etsy, basically legally pursuing them, as in filing lawsuits and cease and desist notices. And all of that legal action was going to jeopardize listing fees and commissions. The lawsuit continued to say that Etsy management knew of the rampant trademark and copyright infringement and fraudulent stuff and everything else, but did little to stop it. And in fact, worked to hide this information from potential investors. And I would say, yeah, that's probably true. This was not a good time for Etsy. In its first earnings report, it revealed that it had lost almost $37 million dollars in its first quarter, which in the previous year, in the entire year, they had only lost $400,000. So something was going very wrong. To make matters worse, around the same time, a profile of a million-dollar Etsy seller, someone that Etsy had been touting as a top success story, this profile done by Fast Company, led to the discovery that this seller was also reselling stuff she was buying from Alibaba, and some of that stuff was copied from other brands and designers. This was not a good look. This was the worst look. Next, Amazon gets in on the action. They're trying to ramp up their own competitor to Etsy, Amazon Handmade, and they were literally sending Facebook messages and emails to top Etsy sellers to try to get them to leave the platform 
and join this new one. By the way, you can still sell handmade on Amazon. It's still there. But you have to be prepared to sell to customers who expect super fast, free shipping, and low, low prices. Oh, wait. Are we talking about Etsy right now or Amazon? (laughs) This bumpy ride continued into 2017 when Black & White Capital LP, which owned about 2% of Etsy shares, released a letter criticizing aspects of the company, both big and small, from its horrendous search functionality to historical pattern of ill-advised spending. This was the last straw. Chad Dickerson was ousted as CEO, 8% of the Etsy workforce was laid off, and a new CEO, Josh Silverman, was put in place. With Silverman in place, the company took off. Sales continued to grow to more than a billion dollars per quarter in 2018 and then to two billion dollars per quarter in 2020. It's always important to remember that Etsy only keeps a small fraction of that money and they must continue to keep that momentum of growth because they're still smaller than eBay, but they are getting closer and closer. So we've talked about how You know, Etsy only takes a small part of that sales revenue, right? And, you know, for many years, all that Etsy was receiving there was that listing fee, which I want to say was 20 cents, and then that 3.5% commission. Etsy was like, "We, we need to make more money off of our sellers, right? So just before Silverman took over, an Etsy executive told Forbes that more than half of Etsy's revenue came from seller's fees, including its new proprietary payment processing system, which took a fee of 3% plus 25 cents per U.S. transaction from the seller. And the company had made it the mandatory default option, removing the option for sellers to use their individual PayPal accounts because listing fees and commissions weren't generating enough revenue. Etsy looked at these transactions and said, why is PayPal getting a piece of this? We want that money. It's the same thing eBay did. And like that, Etsy was able to increase its revenue. When Etsy began to promote free shipping in 2019, okay, well, promote is not a great word here, maybe demanded, extorted, I'm not really sure. But in order to be pushed up in the search results, and by the way, when there are tens of millions of items for sale on the site, being in those first few pages of search results can really make or break your business. You know, I've had various jobs where we try to do as much analysis and research into what we would call page fatigue, which was basically like how many pages of product can you have before customers stop looking. One of my jobs, we had like 50 pages of dresses and we found that most customers stopped after the 10th page. So those 40 other pages weren't being shopped and they were just sort of a liability. And what it really said to us is, okay, we need to buy less kinds of stuff and more units of the things we buy. That's not what's going on here at Etsy. Etsy obviously has millions of items for sale on there, and it's all based on individual sellers. And Etsy wants as many listings as possible because they get a fee for that. They're saying, hey, if you provide free shipping, 
we will push you up in the search results. You won't get lost in those pages that people are too bored to look at. Well, it's also important to remind you that the seller pays for that so-called free shipping because as we know, there is no such thing as free shipping. Now, some smart sellers realized that right off the bat and raised their prices. Others did not. But either way, it's that same old scam of free shipping that Amazon and every other retailer are selling to you. Now, Etsy's in on that. That initiative actually resulted in a 37% increase in Etsy's revenue over the previous year. And to be clear, this free shipping was a direct attempt at competing with Amazon, or at least an acceptance of the Amazonification of online shopping. Customers expect free, fast shipping, and low, low prices. Now, this time, this moment, could have been yet another turning point in Etsy's history because the ethos, the original ethos of Etsy was that Etsy wasn't Amazon. Etsy wasn't Walmart. This was handmade stuff made by a community of people who really cared about doing the right thing. There is a premium for that product. Etsy could have said, hey, guess what? We're not Amazon. We're not Walmart. And we don't ever want to be. And that is why you have to pay for shipping here. Everything we're selling is actually being sold by sellers who make it themselves. And asking them to provide free shipping takes money out of their pockets. Etsy could have done that. But instead, Etsy took the Amazon route. In 2020, Etsy started automatically advertising its sellers' products and taking a fee at least 12% for every sale it referred. Now, sellers who sold less than $10,000 a year in product could opt out, but everyone was opted in by default. And if you opted out and then somehow one of your products sold in something related to advertising, Etsy would take an even higher fee. So it was another like weird sort of extortion. And 12% is a lot. If you pay $50 for something, that would mean $6 of that plus all the other fees was going to Etsy. If it was $100, there's 12 and so on and so on. What we see here with all these policy changes over the years, from allowing resellers to free shipping to the newish Etsy advertising policy and all the other fees, all of this is to drive higher profit and revenue for a company that may, not even may, definitely has hit its ceiling in terms of organic growth, meaning there aren't many new customers to bring in. There aren't any new sellers, especially as sellers continue to leave the platform to start their own website or sell directly on Instagram. Heck, vintage sellers are going back to eBay. Even this new star seller system that rewards sellers with what? I don't know, for shipping stuff super fast and free while responding to customer messages super fast at all hours of all days is really just a way of Amazonifying the experience for customers. Well, the shopping customers, not the sellers who are also customers. Jenny Topolsky, an Etsy jeweler, told Vox, it often feels like they're trying to sell us more products. It's almost like a pay-to-play style of business which I think people feel insulted by. We're the heart of the company, creating literally all content and revenue, 
and suddenly we weren't particularly welcome anymore. Well, Nicole of Kilner Goods, who's a member of our community, sent me a great message about her experiences with Etsy. She broke it all down. The ever-increasing fees, the free shipping, all of it, adding, quote, then it was a nearly constant push for sales. Have a sale for this or that holiday, and again, we'll rank you higher in the search if you have a sale. Lately and lastly, it's this pop-up shit that comes up after you've favorited something. It says, hurry, buy this soon. There's only one left. Very Amazon, very fast fashion-like, and it just cheapens the feel of the site for me. I make one-of-a-kind items, and though they're not cheap, the constant discount this mentality makes me feel like Etsy is trying to make their site like any other fast fashion and cheap home site. She went on to say, I feel lucky that there is an Etsy rather than just brick and mortar or craft shows because of its huge reach and because trying to drive traffic to my own e-commerce site seems like a magical alchemy I really don't care to master. But man... I wish it would slow down, if that makes sense. I know they are a large company that exists to make money, but why does every company seem to sell out when they get to a certain tipping point? I know longing for Etsy to get smaller and less competitive is a fantasy, but I feel like they were originally more small business focused and less Etsy trend report. Other sellers have called out the complete loss of community, which was an integral part of early Etsy. Kenzie of White Citrus Ceramics said, I've been selling there since 2012 and I was able to adapt to the changes, but one thing I've noticed is that they seem to have done away with the community aspect. My guess is it because it went from helpful message boards with other sellers to buyers thinking it was customer service. So they just became spam walls of this shop won't answer me. I've emailed them 10 times in the last two hours, which I think that's another important thing to call out. As Etsy expanded its customer base, as it went on to try to be both eBay and Amazon and something to everyone, it brought in more and more people who weren't from the maker community, who don't understand the time involved in making things, who maybe don't even understand how Etsy works. They're there for cheap, fast gifts. If you want to see how this all plays out, please go check out the Small Biz Memes Instagram account. The way customers talk to Etsy sellers fills me with the kind of rage I normally reserve for billionaire space travel. These customers who are not part of the crafting community have no concept of the time involved in making these items. They don't understand that when you're shipping via USPS, things are out of your control. And they certainly don't understand that sometimes sellers take a day off and can't respond to customer messages. Etsy's expansion has certainly made it harder to be a seller. Kate Kennedy, another Etsy seller, told Vox, my customer interaction at the beginning was so different than it is now. People were much kinder, more flexible, more understanding, and now people are expecting things in two days and asking for coupon codes and free shipping. By cosmetically making it more like Amazon, there's a huge disconnect between the customer's expectations and what the sellers can realistically provide. And I agree here. Once again, Etsy had two routes they could have taken, even long after Kaylin was gone, even long after they started allowing resellers and manufacturing and all this other nonsense, there were still two paths they could have taken. One, 
which is the one they took, is to be like, we're going to we're gonna copy Amazon. We're going to do all the things that Amazon does. Free shipping, immediate customer response. We're going to bring in all these people who have never shopped from Etsy any, ever before, probably don't understand that most of this stuff is handmade, like literally by one person. And they have expectations that everything is immediate and exactly what they want when they want. So that's the path Etsy took. Etsy could have taken that other path where they said, hey, guess what? We're Etsy. We're not Amazon. We're not Walmart. We're not any of the other places that you shop. We are special. We do something that no one else is doing. And that is we sell you things made by people that you can literally talk to, that you can become friends with on the internet. These people are making this stuff in their homes and it's special. Don't harass them about how long it's going to take to ship. Don't send them menacing messages because you haven't heard back from them within an hour of your first message. Don't expect discounts and coupon codes and don't expect free shipping because Etsy is special, Etsy is premium, and therefore it doesn't operate by the same rules. Etsy didn't choose that. Etsy was like, no, we're going to be Amazon. Once you let that genie out of the bottle, you can't stuff it back in. Etsy can't suddenly next week be like, you know what? We're going to go that other route. It's too late. In December of 2020, as the USPS practically collapsed, packages were lost or delivered in late January or even in February, Rather than stepping in and educating buyers about the issue, Etsy opted to instead say, hey, USPS is behind schedule, so why not just buy a gift card instead? Meanwhile, sellers were left to deal with the harassment and threats of customers who somehow, I don't know how, had not yet heard that USPS was falling to pieces. Once again, go visit small biz memes and see the way customers were treating these makers. It is infuriating. How these shoppers didn't know about what was going on in the world is beyond me, but they were harassing these sellers, accusing them of trying to rip them off, threatening to report them to like Visa and PayPal and Better Business Bureau and anyone else. And Etsy could have stepped in. It could have been that easy. For example, Poshmark. Poshmark over-communicated with its buyers about what was happening. There was a massive banner on the site that basically said, hey, USPS is a mess. Your stuff is going to be laid. Plan accordingly. Meanwhile, as I mentioned, Etsy had a similar banner. All it said was, why don't you buy a gift card instead? Furthermore, Poshmark was sending out emails to update you on what was going on with your individual purchases. Where it was, the timeline you could expect it to turn around, and what you could do if it didn't arrive within a certain time frame, which was, you know, get your money back. Poshmark supported its sellers, and I think probably kind of reduced the temperature on its customers' frustrations. Etsy just let it burn out of control. So if Etsy is so terrible, has just abandoned its sellers, just exploits them, why aren't all the sellers moving elsewhere? After all, in theory, capitalism should lead to competition and innovation, meaning better selling platforms that care for its sellers. In 2010, 
Etsy bitch began a series breaking down the Etsy alternatives out there. Let's see where they all are right now, okay? First off, there was Cargo. Cargo that ends with an O-H. It is still around, and unlike Etsy, sellers on Cargo must be approved because the company wants to have a more curated assortment. As we know, Etsy and curated, not synonyms. (laughs) They also want to ensure that categories don't become oversaturated. So you can apply, you may not be approved to sell. The fees, they're about 8%. They seem to be in line with Etsy, although now Etsy has all these additional fees. Also, Cargo doesn't push for free shipping and all the other nonsense. But the trade-off is, real talk, Cargo doesn't get the kind of traffic that Etsy gets. So yeah, it might be easier to list your stuff there. It's going to be harder to reach customers. Next, Etsy bitch suggested shop handmade, but apparently it was kind of sketchy. It had low traffic and, you know, it disappeared pretty fast. Another platform is Zibit, and it does seem pretty decent. Although, once again, it's important to remember that none of these sites get even close to the kind of traffic that Etsy receives. Silk Fair, another suggestion, seems to be gone. Minted without an E, M-I-N-T-D, R-I-P, gone. Artfire, still around, but it does look like a poor man's Etsy. Once again, not getting in the kind of traffic that Etsy gets. Dewanda was a European Etsy. And in 2018, Dewanda shut down and Etsy absorbed its sellers. So they're gone. Another one called Coriander without the E. What a trend that was in startup naming, right? Take out that E, just leave the R on the end. Well, Coriander, R-I-P, gone. Another one with a very intriguing name, Wink Elf, also gone. 1,000 Markets, gone. E-Crater, now seems to be a weird eBay, and the homepage currently shows tires, some gently used Revlon lipstick that it's photographed very poorly, and baseball paraphernalia. So clearly not an alternative to Etsy. And as time passed, as Etsy needed to maximize its sales and profits by reaching every possible customer and seller on earth, it began buying up other companies that were either direct competitors or at least doing the Etsy thing in another country. This included LO7, which was the Brazilian Etsy, a little market, the French Etsy, a company called Trunked, that's T-R-U-N-K-T, which was a wholesaler of artisan-made goods. Basically, Etsy's like, we're going to corner the wholesale market as well. And so now Trunked is Etsy Wholesale. They acquired, and as far as I can tell, shut down something called Yellowsmith, which described itself as a community of makers working together to make great jewelry. Each design is created by an undiscovered designer, shaped by our global community, and made in our workshop. That website no longer exists. I couldn't find anything about the brand anywhere else. On top of that, Etsy continued to buy up other peer-to-peer selling platforms like Dustin's favorite, Reverb, which was used music equipment. And of course, we know that Etsy bought Depop, which is where you can buy vintage and secondhand clothing and accessories. And you know what? There's a lot of handmade stuff on Etsy too. Basically just trying to absorb every part of the business that it can. Because 
when you've reached the maximum number of sellers, the maximum number of customers, and you've kind of maxed out fees at this point. I mean, if you if Etsy raises any more fees, creates any more fees, more people are going to leave the platform. When you've maxed out all of that, you have to start gobbling up other companies. And that's that's what Etsy's doing right now by buying Reverb and Depop and some other ones. So now in 2021, if you sell vintage clothing, you do have options out there if you want to escape Etsy. You could go to eBay or Vinted, Mercari, even Poshmark. Can't go to Depop anymore because Etsy owns them. None of these options are great, right? If you're a maker, the options are even worse because it's either Amazon Handmade, which sounds terrible based on what I've read. Jenny Topolsky described it to Vox as, Terms for the sellers are awful. For all of the things they've changed, you still run your own business on Etsy. If you sell on Amazon, you're working for Amazon. Of course, there are the few remaining sites that I listed, but they don't bring in traffic. They don't. You can't run a business that way. And so for all intents and purposes, Etsy has a monopoly on handmade goods. This allows them to dictate the terms from pricing to policy, and sellers have little room to argue. Is it unfair? Oh, yeah, for sure. Does it go against Rob Kalin's vision? Absolutely. Kalin would tell Vox in 2019, how much money does Etsy have in its bank account? And how much does the average Etsy seller have in their bank account? Who can afford to be more generous? Yet here we are. The company is asking the sellers to be more generous with the company. Etsy is not 2005 Etsy. It's not even 2008 Etsy. Were one of those years the golden era? I don't, I don't know. What was the time that Etsy sellers look back on fondly as the time they wish they could relive? A time they know they were so lucky to experience. It's hard to say. If you asked the writers of Etsy Bitch, who, by the way, stopped publishing in 2011 after the death of one of their team members, Angelica Rail, they would tell you that Etsy never had a good time, that it had always been a shit show. But certainly, Etsy Bitch would have a lot to say about free shipping and star sellers, manufacturing, advertising, and all of the other nonsense that came later. In fact, can we start a petition to bring back Etsy bitch, the world needs it. I don't know when the original ethos of Etsy died. Probably when Rob Kalin was ousted the first time, maybe the second time. But regardless, as Jenny Topolsky, who I've quoted numerous times in this episode, would tell Vox, it's just a place to sell now. I still think the company is more ethical than a lot of big companies. I don't feel particularly mushy feelings towards them. It's kind of just business, whereas I used to feel a lot more. That's not quite as harsh as Etsy is just Walmart with a better font, but I feel both of them. <laughs> I want to wrap things up here by saying this. Please don't stop supporting all of the small business people who sell on Etsy. This is their lifeline to customers until something better comes along. And right now, that better thing doesn't exist. I like to imagine a nonprofit cooperative for sellers where, yes, there are still fees, but that money is used to run a good site, provide customer service, all of the things that are lacking at Etsy, run with true transparency, 
and a vote from all members of the co-op. Just something for all of us to noodle on. There could be something better. Rob Kalen, if you're listening, call me. We can talk about it together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. Please, if you have a moment, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend. If you would like to support my work, please consider becoming a patron. You can learn more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast or make a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Please don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department. It's the fun podcast. This is the unfun podcast. And last but not least, thanks as always to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.